Bizarrely, there's a creative element in making sure that your case doesn't look creative. You make it as simple as possible and then you make it as elegant uh, as you can. So you're transferring from a relationship of opposition to actually a relationship of partnership. It's kind of the opposite of a divorce life. Hi, my name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we've got an exciting episode of The Common Creative to share with you today. But before we get into that, we've got a little commercial advert to share with you and some exciting news. That's correct, Chris. We've launched this week, which was about a month ago now when you're hearing this, our new program, Ideas and Stories That Matter. It's uh, a program that has come out of this podcast because we have noticed that people that we interview are all about ideas and stories. And so it's actually we've learned from our guests and the importance of ideas and stories that matter. So the program will be out in many different versions in 2022. So check out the details on our website. So Chris, back to our guest today. Yes, our guest, the wonderful Ben Gardner, is a practicing barrister in IP law, uh, which means he's on the other side of the fence, creatively speaking. He's the person who helps creatives protect um, their thinking and their ideas. And it's interesting, you'd imagine it'd be a rather dry and dusty topic, but Ben also has some fascinating pastimes outside of his day job, and they all inform the way he practices law. So um, a fascinating episode coming up. Yeah, let's get Ben in. So Ben Gardner, welcome to the show, The Common Creative. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, Ben, it's, it's great to meet you and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to be on. I've not been on a podcast before and it's given me the opportunity to actually, you know, in the lead up, have a think about what creativity is to me because um, it's not, I have to admit, it's not something that I, that I often think about, but it's it's been a worthwhile process just having it in the back of my mind for the last week or so. So um, it's, so it's funny because I, I think I mean, you're an IP barrister. Is I think that's the right way to describe it. That's right. That right? Yep. Yes. And so there's a, there's a very uh, obvious angle of creativity to ask you about, but we'll get into some less obvious ideas. But the first is people like Paul and I and creatives out there in the world are forever coming up with new ideas. And your role, I'm guessing, is to help pe- who have, people who've had ideas to protect um, what it is they've created. So your role is like like the creative um, police officer, I, I guess I was uh, thinking. Um, is that true? Is, is, is that a good description of your role in the, if, in the world of creativity? You're the, you're the police officer? Well, I think that's true to an extent. I mean, ultimately, the, the court is the police officer and, and I'm the um, person there who's trying to persuade the judge to make a particular order. Um, but that's right. Um, uh, ideas are protected in a few different ways under the law and probably the most obvious way is through the patent system. And I'm not involved at the front end of that, so I'm not involved in getting patents registered and all of that sort of thing, but I'm certainly involved when someone thinks their patent has been infringed or when someone challenges a patent and says that it's not, that it's not valid. But it's really the litigation stage that I'm mainly involved with. I'm guessing it's it's a growing issue. I, I am I'm assuming that creatives are born optimists and that they they come up with ideas and don't worry about the kind of the the, the implications, the consequences, the protection. Everything's going to be rosy in the garden, and and therefore more and more there are issues ahead for creatives. So is is it a growing industry? Is there are there more and more issues of protecting creativity? Uh, it's definitely growing. Um, 
patent litigation and getting patents registered is incredibly expensive. Um, so it's it's growing, but it tends to be primarily uh, larger companies that are involved in patent litigation. Um, but uh, there's other aspects of creativity that the law protects that, um, like, for example, copyright and even trademarks, um, where uh, it's definitely a growing industry. And you're right, creative people, first of all, largely optimistic. Sometimes some water has to be poured on the optimism when you're going up <laughs> to litigation. Um, and they're also, um, uh, well, and I don't think this is just creative people. I think this is people generally often don't look a long way down the track and they, they do assume things are going to be fine. And so things aren't registered in the way the law wants them to be registered um, and that sort of thing. So you've got to deal with all those kind of problems um, in litigation. And that's, that's not fun a lot of the time. Uh, but, and also, um, people are often quite emotionally attached to their ideas. Um, and so I think that IP law is an area of the law that is um, a little bit sometimes tinged with a bit more emotion than other areas of commercial law. You know, fam- I don't do family law, and that, that, that's obviously incredibly emotional. And oh, crime has got a big emotional content, um, content as well. But you wouldn't necessarily think of IP as having an emotional content, but it does because people feel so aggrieved that, that someone has stolen their idea and often justifiably so. Um, I so, completely imply every, every idea you have is like a little baby. It's your creation and yeah, yeah. you have a strong connection with that. It makes perfect sense to me. Exactly. So that adds a whole new aspect to the case. Often it's quite useful to present to the judge too because that, that emotion may not actually have any black letter relevance to the case at all but it can be part of the story that you're presenting to the judge. Yeah, uh, Ben, it's very interesting. And I've had, as you know, a, a little experience <laughs> in this area of defending um, uh, some, some trademarks. The, um, it's very particular, like the law is very particular. And, you know, whilst a generalisation to say creatives, you know, big picture people, uh, it tends to be more the case that you know, we are creatives, so I tend to be more big picture. But it really is very, very specific. And I know... You know, I was caught up on some really, you know, I would have thought minor technicalities, um, yet it's, it's really difficult. So uh, I suppose sort of jumping ahead a little bit, you know, do you have some advice for, you know, creators in terms of when they are, you know, putting this stuff together so that they, they have a better ability to defend it later if that, that rises? Yeah, well, de- definitely. I mean, um, th- now, th- I mean, the law only protects IP rights in, in quite particular ways. Um, and as I said, patents are, are the way that sort of ideas primarily get, get protected. So if you've invented some new machine or, or some new gadget, um, then largely the only way to protect that is, is through a patent. If it's, and then there's, there's other things like design registrations and trademark registrations. Trademark registrations are, are primarily about protecting um, a business reputation. Uh, so they're a bit different from protecting the idea of an invention. Um, uh, but both patents and trademarks and designs all need to be registered in order to be protected. And you need to register them um, before they've really been used in public. Um, sorry, that, that's, that's the case for designs and patents, not so much for trademarks, but all of them need to be ultimately registered in order to be properly protected. And there are lots of technicalities about around the way you do that. And it's actually, it's, it's possible to get online and register your own trademark. 
but there are risks associated with it. Um, people can register in the wrong name uh, is, is, you know, the prime example of something that's really easy to do. You've got one company that does one thing, another company that does another thing, and you just register in the wrong name or you register in your own personal name. And that can be fatal to your trademark registration. Um, so even though it's expensive and, you know, I don't want to get people to incur legal fees when they don't need to, but it is worth getting some advice from someone um, prior to making those registrations. Um, copyright's different. You don't have to register copyright at all. Um, copyright just subsists in the work that's created as soon as it's created or published. Um, and so you don't have those registration issues in relation to copyright, but you still do have lots of complicated technical issues when you come to try and sue someone for copyright infringement. You've got to be able to prove that you're the author and um, that it's original work and all those sorts of things. So IP litigation is complicated and that's part of the reasons it's expensive um, and that's and, and the court, you know, goes to some effort to try and mitigate those costs by making um, uh, procedures uh, um, simpler for some people. Um, but no matter which way you do it, it's it's a it's a complicated and expensive process, unfortunately. Ben, you're, you're a barrister, which I, I guess means you're sometimes in court arguing a case about a, a patent or a trademark or something like that. And I guess that means you're a creative as well, because a barrister has to interpret the law and present a case to a judge against so I guess my question is would you describe yourself as a creative or is that a, a gross misrepresentation of your role? Well um, there's certainly a creative aspect to it um, and uh, so so before I was a, a lawyer I was a pharmacist and um, I think you know they would have to be two of the least creative roles <laughs> you could imagine. <laughs> Um, or at least they, they're not commonly regarded as creative um, industries. Uh, but there's certainly a creative aspect to law and in, in presenting a, um, an argument to a judge. But, I mean, primarily there, there's just a black-letter law case, right? There's the facts, you've got to present the facts and you've got to present the law and there's not a huge amount of creative um, component to that. But in the end, you are persuading a judge and the judge is a human being and whenever you're presenting a legal argument, I, I think it needs to have um, two creative aspects to it. Um, one is you need to surround the argument with a narrative. So there's, there's got to be a story um, about why your side should win. And that story is normally a story about the actual characters. You know, there's a dramatis persona, if you like, um, and you need to paint your guy as the good guy because bad guys don't win cases regardless of um, how good they're largely. Judges don't like letting bad guys win. So you need to have a, a story that presents your guys being in on the right side of it. So that's one aspect of, of creativity. So you've got the black letter facts and law, but you've got to present this narrative that goes over the top of it. Um, and the other aspect of creativity, I think, is um, that judges, like all human beings, prefer beautiful things to ugly things. So you don't want to present your case as being an exception to the exception to the exception of rule A, right? Because that, that just is a, a complicated, unattractive sort of way of arguing your case. You really want to present it as, as the most beautiful and elegant argument that you can present. So, you you know, you're either going from first principles or you're going from this line of authority and and um, and and when you're doing that, you know, I'm describing this as a creative process. Uh, the last thing you want to do, the absolute last thing you want to do, is tell the judge that this is a, a creative and wholly innovative argument that you're presenting. Ah. Uh, 
because judges hate that. Judges want complete orthodox down the line. This is just a consistent application of well-known authorities. Um, so th- I think in some ways, bizarrely, there's a creative element in making sure that your case doesn't look creative. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wonderful, yes. Um, and sometimes that's hard because, uh, especially in my area, in IP, you're, you're applying um, legislation that is quite old to quite novel situations. So the Copyright, for example, the Copyright Act, um, was enacted in the same year I was born, 1968. So it's it's been um, amended, obviously, lots of times over the years uh, to try and keep up with, you know, photocopiers and fax machines and the internet and um, whatever. Uh, but it's always behind. And so you're, you're constantly trying to persuade a judge that this legislation really provides for this new situation and this is an infringement or it's not an infringement or whatever, but do it in a way that's completely consistent and orthodox with the with the pre-existing authorities. So I, I think, you know, I've persuaded myself that there actually is a bit of creative, <laughs> creative creativity to all of that. I love that paradox of applying creativity to prove that you're not being creative. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, humans historically um, have sort of done this. I think over the years, over the, um, over the, over the centuries, um, humans often um, try and show that they're complying with cultural norms um, and that's the only way they can get ahead. But, but there's always a kind of a, a hidden, you know, tattoo just you know below your ankle that no that no one sees um that kind of is showing your showing your creativity <laughs> you know what i mean so I anyway is that um it's interesting you say about how to present the argument a friend of mine an architect had a design philosophy was that you make it as simple as possible and then you make it as elegant uh that you can within the budget and whether that budget's time money or whatever it might be and it sounds something very very similar I think it is like that. I think it it, t- it takes a lot of um, thinking to get to that point. You know, um, yes. you know, it's the old Mark Twain thing of you know, I'm sorry for writing you a long letter. I don't have time for a short one. Yes. Um, and and it's it's the it's the same with legal argument. You know, yeah. judges love a, you know a short submission. Um, you know, we we, we usually provide written submissions at the end of a trial or at the beginning of a trial. And judges hate getting a hundred pages of submissions. They want they want ten pages, but. Yeah. It's sometimes it's it's really difficult to to get your case down to, to down to that sort of length. Ben, but I had a uh, sort of a, a question regarding we're talking before about you know, legal fees and, and expenses and things. You're you were a pharmacist, and obviously there's a thing in you know, pharmaceutical companies spend a lot of money developing drugs if it's going to be profitable. Then they have a patent for a period of time, and then you're available by generic brands. Yeah. Um, I've always been told to don't buy the generic brands because you know, you're not giving the money back to the, the people that you know invent the new stuff. Um, that, that's the first bit. But I suppose it is that thing about, you know, it's pharmaceuticals are big dollars, but I've always said that, you know, the, I've always heard it said the IP is only as strong as your pockets are deep. Look, it depends on the case. Um, the um, pharmaceutical patent litigation is intensely fought and it's, it's worth, you know, a lot, a lot of money. One case I was involved with um, a long, well, a fair while ago now. Um, I, I was told confidentially that the that the um, dispute was worth a million dollars a day to the, to the company. Um, so it's you know it's 
they're great sort of clients because they really don't care how much they're spending on on patent litigation. It makes it look cheap, um, whereas it's incredibly expensive. It depends on so so ultimately it depends on the patent. Uh, so so in, in that kind of case, when it's worth that much money, um, generic companies will have a crack at the patent, uh, even if they think there's a ninety percent chance they're going to fail, because the ten percent chance of winning is is just so worth it. Right. So so they 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 have a crack. Um, and, and equally the other way, if the if the um, if the patent holder thinks that their patent really is probably invalid, um, they've got to do everything they can to hang on to it, even if there's only a slim chance they'll manage to, to hang on to it. Um, so that means that the, the kind of scope of cases that run to trial when there's when there's more money at stake is broader than the scope of cases where there's less money at stake. Because when you've got um, people who can't spend that kind of money, they've got to make a much more considered and commercial decision about whether it's worth running the patent litigation or not. Right, right. And, and they often settle. So I've had two patent cases in the last week that, that have um, both settled. Um, and the parties on both sides um, in those cases had had good arguable cases. Like they could easily have run to trial. There's, there was no reason not to run those cases. Um, but they both were relatively small companies compared to big pharmaceutical pharmaceutical manufacturers, and they just took the commercial decisions to to settle. Um, in one case, the the patent owner um, agreed to license the infringer, uh, mm-hmm. so they entered, entered into a commercial relationship as a result of the litigation. And that that's something that, that that quite often happens. Um, so that that's another creative. I mean, you're looking for creative outcomes. Um, mediators love to say that mediation. So almost every case I'm involved with goes to mediation before it goes to trial. Um, and mediators love to say that mediation allows creative solutions because the judge can only decide black and white. You know, you win and you lose. And here are the orders that follow from that decision. Um, mediation can come up with all sorts of different solutions, including you know the parties. Um, having a relationship, a commercial relationship going forward. Um, so, so you're transferring from a, a relationship of opposition to actually a relationship of partnership. It's kind of the opposite of a divorce lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, ben, I, I wonder if I can ask if you've learned anything about where ideas come from. I imagine if you're building the narrative around an idea and the, the fact that it belongs to a certain party and not another party. One of the questions asked me, well, where did it come from? Is this brand new? Did it come out of nowhere or the, the inventor's brain? Or was it actually from somewhere else and therefore not so easy to protect? And I, I what's in my mind is those famous cases of um, music infringement and they ask a, um, a songwriter or whatever, where did it come from? And the answer is usually, well, I just thought of it. I was just humming it one day and then I sort of... Do you have any more depth on where ideas come from? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, so for the purposes of patent law, it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. Um, you just have to show that it's uh, novel and, and, that, and that doesn't require much over what they call the prior art. So you just have to, it has to be a new idea over the prior art. And there's, um, there's famous cases that say, you know, it doesn't matter if you've spent hundreds of hours working on the solution to this problem or you just remembered it from a dream um it, it's it, the, the amount of work that to put into it um doesn't matter but the, but to the question where does the idea come from um it's really interesting because I, it seems to me that ideas um seem to come in one of two ways i think they're, they're either kind of a, a revolution or an evolution and and revolutionary ideas are great they're quick 
but they're often um, incredibly destructive. Um, people can get hurt by you know destructive technologies or or whatever. Um, uh, and the solution often isn't isn't fantastic. You know, look at the French Revolution. You know, I don't think anyone <laughs> would want to go through um, that again. But um, but evolution probably comes up with better solutions. But it's but it's really slow. And so what you ideally want is kind of a revolutionary, sorry, an evolutionary solution on a revolutionary timescale. Um, and it's funny, I don't know if you've, uh, there's, a, there's a British physicist called David Deutsch, and he, he's got this idea um, about um, the, the, um, creativity and, and evolution of ideas. And the example he gives is of, of a joke. Um, because, you know, often you, you hear a joke and you ask the person, um, did you make that joke up? And they say, no, um, and someone told it to me. And you go to that person and, did you make the joke up? And no, no, someone told it to me. And, and you can keep going backwards and backwards and backwards and no one ever seems to have ever written this joke. Where, where did it come from? And so the question is, who is the author of the joke? And his theory is that, that there is no author. Or he, this is one of the theories. And the jokes just evolve and they start off as just a little anecdote that is barely worth retelling. It's just something that happened to you and you tell someone. And if it's good enough, they'll tell someone else. And if it's good enough, they'll tell someone else. And so the, the joke has this kind of, the story has this evolution and it kind of gets changed partly by accident, maybe sometimes deliberately because people think it sounds a bit better if you tell it this way. And then, you know, accidentally someone makes a change that makes it a bit funny. And if it's funny, well, it's going to get told more and more times. And so over the generations, eventually this joke just gets better and better. Um, and I think so, sometimes creativity works in that way. And does that mean that jokes define the thing that's least able to be protected? If you had to try, if you tried to protect a joke, try to copyright it or whatever it might be, maybe it's one of those things that you could never protect because there is no one original source of that yeah. joke. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's right. So, so a joke would be something. Say, if it was published in a book or um, or or in a movie, that it'll be protected by copyright. Yeah. Um, but yeah. in order to have copyright protection, you need to show that it's original. Yeah. Um. So you'd need to show that joke was was your original work, um, which you're usually you're not going to be able to do. I mean, obviously, there's lots of great joke writers, um, and movies do have original jokes in them. But but um, nevertheless, I thought it was an interesting idea that often the jokes we tell don't seem to have any author. That's I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, you just sort of mentioning there, you know, your original idea. We've been talking about creativity in, in your career and your previous career. Uh, what about personally? Um, do you have some creative habits? I know there for a while you were uh, a cheesemaker. <laughs> I was. Well, I think I've got, well, I'll talk about personal habits in a sec, but, um, but certainly something that I've done over the years is. Um, I do have an interest in learning new things, and um, but but I think uh, so. For example, twenty years ago, I, I learned to fly a plane, and I I, I decided um, after I'd done a few solo flights that really <laughs> this career probably wasn't for me, and um, I wasn't going to be flying regularly enough to to be safe. So I um, I put an end to that, but I loved it, and I, I might one day go back to it. Um, and then I've done other things like I learned to make cheese, and um, I'm. Uh, Last year, I had surfing lessons, and um, at the moment, I'm I'm doing an online course on how to code computer code, <laughs> which is going very slowly. But, but I, I think a lot of those things are quite technical and not particularly creative. And I was I was interesting in reflecting on that. That um, I think all of these things are, um, are, are sort of um, yeah, technical rather than creative um, roles. 
Um, but they, certainly they will have creative aspects to them. Well, maybe not aviation, but <clears throat> um, cheese making certainly does. Surfing potentially does once you actually get good enough. Um, I think that's one of the things about creativity. I think you, um, uh, in order to be creative in a lot of things, you need to, to be very good technically uh, before you can really be creative. Um, um, it depends on the industry, but if you think about the great um, scientists um, or even the great musical composers, um, often they're highly accomplished musicians um, before they um, can really produce amazing creative works. Um, and same with, you know, people like Einstein or even going back to Copernicus, you know, that they, they are incredibly well-read um, in their respective field before they come up with their, their great idea. Um, and um, I'm certainly not a creative surfer. <laughs> I think, yeah, so, yeah, you know, I think there's, there's probably two schools of thought there, uh, Ben. Certainly one is, you know, as, as you say, like the 10,000 hours and, and things like that. But there's also the in creativity is the thing about the beginner's mind. Yeah, also, yeah. You know, Einstein said something around imagination is more important than knowledge. Uh, but I've done some research, you know, that shows that you know older people are creative because they put put together existing knowledge in different ways to create something new. And so, you know, it is a bit of a paradox. But there certainly is a very strong sort of idea in creativity that about the beginner's mind that you know the naivety. You know, you, you don't know what you don't know, uh, and so you don't you have no limitations. So I think there's things on. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It, obviously, it depends on the field, um, and you know, it's pretty hard to be creative in in quantum physics uh, when you're not talking about it. Yeah. But, um, but but I really think what you said about connections is right, and so um, uh, you know, I, I think getting a, a very deep knowledge in your own field, but then also you know, reading broadly and and getting experience of other fields, um, that really helps creativity. I think because you're the idea of connecting one thing to another is often where creativity lies. And um, I, I think that's true in art and music. You know, um, some great musical works, you, you know, they really work to a large extent through metaphor and um, through what the music is expressing. And you, you, can't, you can't have a metaphor unless you understand that other issue that you're referring to. Um, you know, you can't, people say it's hard to write about a broken heart until you've, till you've had one. <laughs> um, and so, you know, maybe there's something in that, um, making those kind of connections. And I think that works across different industries as well. I think it helped for me, like you, it's bizarre to think that a career in pharmacy would help your career in law, but I think, I think it does in a way. I think, you know, having experience in other fields, um, helps you when you, when you move across to a new career. I'd, I'd love to know how you select that very diverse range of other, you said, flying a plane, making cheese, surfing, learning to code. Completely, it looks like a random list, but there must be something that guides you to one thing versus another. It's how do you select the, uh, the activities that you, you explore? Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd, lo I'd love to think there's a golden thread, Chris, but I, I don't think there is. <laughs> I, I think it is partly random. I think... I think probably they're all things that I've thought over the years I'd like to do and and then something sparks the opportunity to do it. So so for surfing, for example, I lived in Melbourne for a long time and we had a big dilemma about whether we'd move the family back to Brisbane or not. We, we're both, our families are all up here and we loved living in Melbourne, but um, in the end, about seven years ago, we decided to move back and it was a hard decision because we had friends down there and we loved living in Melbourne. 
Um, but I said, right, if I'm moving back to Queensland, the one thing I want to do is I'm definitely going to learn to surf. Yeah, okay. Um, All right. <laughs> so, so that triggered that. And there's coding and my son's doing engineering um, in Melbourne Uni and he recommended this course. So I thought, oh, well, I've always kind of been interested in that. I'll, I'll give that a go. And, um, so is, do, I'm guessing they, just as pharmacy, might have informed your practice of law. Do, do, does, does, was your cheese making influenced by learning to fly or was is your coding influenced by your knowledge of surfing? Yeah. I can't see the connections there, um, <laughs> but I do like the idea of having diverse interests yeah, and trying to have yeah. something that's quite separate from law. I mean, law is very intense, as I'm sure you know. Um, you know obviously, lots of other careers are too, and you 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 focus on on um, a very narrow um, area, um, and it's quite monastic. Also, um, being a barrister, a lot of the time, you know, when you're in court, it's you hardly call it social, at least you're interacting with other people. But when you're not in court, um, you're often just in the room by yourself for a long time. So having something like surfing where you can go out and be outdoors and interact with someone um, is very appealing. Coding obviously doesn't quite fit that requirement, um, but I kind of like the technical challenge of it. Um, I think I might have bitten off more than I can chew in coding, but, <laughs> but it's still, it's interesting. And I kind of like getting an understanding of that. And it probably does play into law a little bit more than um, because there are, Lots of I do strike a fair few IP cases that are either a copyright case relating to source code or um, um, or that sort of thing. So having a kind of a, a a more rounded understanding of computer science is helpful. Although I wouldn't quite say I've got a rounded knowledge of it yet, but anyway, it, a bit of an exposure to it. Yeah, is that a chess set I see in your in the background? Behind? It is a chess set. Yes. So you were asking before about daily habits, and one, one thing I do on the ferry is um, I don't know if you know on chess.com, there's a they just have like a daily um, chess puzzles. So I do that. I don't really play chess much, but I do those daily puzzles um, just about every day as a kind of a not quite a meditation, but um, just a way of focusing on something else. I was grade five chess champion. Um, well, there you go. Down kills and then, so maybe we need to have a crack sometime. Well, I better not have, better not play you. If you sound like you're going to be much better than I am, Paul. Well, I had a grade five, forgive me, Paul, but, um, a grade five chess champion. It sounds like it's been a while since you've played. Would that be true? <laughs> <laughs> right, so I, was, I was opening up, Ben. I'm not a hustler, I'm not a champion. <laughs> um, and I've really loved this conversation. And one of the things I've really loved is, you know, the things that you talked about, you know, ideas, obviously, when we were talking about intellectual property. But the things that came as a surprise was the things about stories. And then you threw in metaphors, which which is um, weaves very well into the new uh, <laughs> program Chris and I developed about ideas and stories that matter. And, you know, part of that is about illustrating. And one way to illustrate stories is through metaphor. Yeah. So um, it's almost like uh, we, we paid you to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, that um, ben, our, our time is just about up. So, look, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's been really very interesting indeed and entertaining. Um, did you have any other final words you'd like to leave with us and our listeners? No, I don't think so. I, I, um, uh, I've really enjoyed it as well. It's been, a, it's been a great experience for me to have a chat with you guys. Um, and, um, You're a podcast natural, Ben. You, you need to put your name out there. To, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and, and learning so much that, that I think is a really strong creative set in, in the legal profession. Um, thank you. You've Thanks, Chris. Great to talk to you both. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. What a great discussion with Ben. Very enlightening about many things, law, cheese making. But what I thought was very interesting, Chris, was this whole idea of expertise versus the beginner's, the beginner's brain and uh, that, that dichotomy and that paradox.
Uh, I, it's so true. I, I can think of an artist like Picasso, who who in his early days was almost a grandmaster, a technical master. And he turned his style into something that was very beginnery, very kind of naive. Um, personally, as a photographer, there are images that I took many years ago that I would struggle to recreate these days. So that that inexperience gave me optimism gave me naivety that I don't possess anymore. And so it's a real dilemma. The beginner's mindset, is it more powerful than the technical master or does the technical master have the opportunity to unlearn things and therefore create new stuff? We should explore that idea in more depth. I think we should, Chris. Maybe we need to have a special session on it because it does make me think even the paradox of Ben himself is in a a profession that requires high expertise. You know, you don't want to go to a IP barrister <laughs> who's got the beginner's mind. <laughs> Yet his external interests are all about learning new things. Yes. So yeah. Really, it's really interesting. I'm sure that when he started making cheese, he wasn't the cheese master to start with. So, uh, and certainly, you know, flying a plane, you can't go solo until you get that technical expertise. So, Imagine the captain of your plane saying, I've never done this before. I hope this goes all right. Uh, so, so if you're listening to this now, we'd love to hear what you think, which is more powerful for creativity, the beginner's mind, the naivety, or the technical master. Uh, please let us have your comments. And if, if you uh, are around and keen to learn more about ideas and stories that matter, that's the new learning program that we're launching right now. Um, please drop us a line. It'll be available in various forms as a live learning experience, an online experience. Um, it's born out of this podcast and it's our chance for you to share in the tools and techniques of ideas and stories that matter. We'll see you again next week. That's correct, Chris. All details will be in the show notes below. And um, yes, thanks for coming along and we'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye for now.